Welcome to the Abbott Loop Community Church Podcast. Enjoy this message from Mark Drake. Go ahead and turn to the book of James. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be going through kind of a, uh, a, uh, a verse-by-verse uh, teaching on uh, James, what James has to say here in the first chapter about faith, about being double-minded. And then ending, hopefully, if I can make it within the time, uh, on what does it mean when James says, for the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. I confess to you that for many years, I'm going on almost my 50th year now of ministry, and for many of those years, I have to confess that I seriously misunderstood what it meant when James says double-minded. I misunderstood it because I was violating one of the three simplest yet most important uh, tools about learning how to read and understand the Bible. And that first tool is consider context. Nearly every cult that's ever gotten started has started because they pulled a verse out of the middle of a lot of other verses and decided what they thought it meant. Where if they would have just backed up a few verses or read past it a few more verses, the Bible would actually tell you what it means. But instead, they did not understand context. The second of those two rules, which by the way, in my book, uh, the, uh, the New Covenant Role of Women in Leadership, uh, it's not, it, it is about women in the Scripture. However, it's also about learning to use these three things. The first is consider context. The second is learning to comprehend culture. Do we have any women here today who have their hair braided? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody who has hair braided right now? Anybody? Can I see their hand? Oh, there's one back there? I'm so sorry, ma'am. You've sinned before God. Oh, my goodness. Now, aren't you sorry you raised your hand? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I like that lady right there. I like her. Well, both Peter and and Jane, uh, both Peter and, and Paul write, women do not braid your hair. Now, what in the world would be wrong with braiding your hair? Well, if you lived in the first century Roman Empire, you would have known, like everybody knew, that the only women who went out of their house with their hair braided were temple prostitutes. That was their business card. They advertised, that's what they did for, it was entirely legal, that's what they did for a living. But there are still churches today that don't allow their women to braid their hair because they read that in the Bible. The problem is they didn't understand that there was a cultural issue. Now, there are principles about modesty and all of those things, but the cultural issues have to be understood. The third uh, tool that we're learning to use is comparing common Scripture. Another way to put that is to learn to do a word study. If you want to know what the word justification means, you'll be making a mistake if you just find one verse that uses the word justification. 
But if you'll use your concordance to find all the verses, put them together, begin to read through them, then you get a bigger understanding of what they mean. Now I want to bring that back to this idea of what I've entitled the message today as the failure of faith. Now when I say the failure of faith, I have to get a, 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 a bit of an explanation in that I'm actually referring to what I, and I'm sure many of us, in days gone by, defined faith, how we defined faith, and how we condemned ourselves if we felt in some circumstance that we did not have faith and we let God down in some way. The way we define words is very important to understand because words, individual words, by themselves have no meaning at all. Because words take on the meaning of the context in which they're used. Because most words have many meanings. In the first service I said, if I say, you, if I say to you the word trunk, what do you think I mean? Come on. An elephant. No. What else? A car trunk. No, because if you lived in England, that would be called a boot. Anybody else? I mean, we could go on and on and on because the word trunk, depending on what sentence you put it in, could be the main part of a tree. It could be an elephant. It could be you're exercising and you want to strengthen the core or the trunk of your body. You could go on and on. If I say sharp, I would be referring to my friend over here who is always a sharp dresser. Or I could be talking about stinky cheddar cheese. Or a knife. Or on and on and on. Words take on the meaning of the context in which they're used. In fact, if you would look in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, the word run has over 100 listed meanings. Over 100 so there's no way that you and I can communicate with words unless we put them in a context. Also, there's no way that you and I can read portions of the Bible and understand what God is trying to speak to us unless we pay close attention to context. And that's one of the things we want to do today. Also, in this master class uh, on New Covenant thinking that we've been teaching this past year, we've been encouraging people when they read a verse or read a passage, uh, uh, several verses, to learn to ask good questions. Who wrote this? Who did they write it to? Why did they write it? Because, as those who were with us yesterday, uh, learned and we realized is that especially in the New Testament those um, individual documents to Romans to the Corinthians whatever they're not books even though out of habit I said to you turn to the book of James that's not really a book it's actually a letter and it's written to people that James already knew when Paul writes to the churches that he established he didn't write him a book. 
he wrote them letters. Now, what's the difference? Well, in a book, you have to assume that the reader knows absolutely nothing about the story you're going to tell. Knows none of the characters. Doesn't even know what time period it started in. You've got to give him all of that. But in a letter, most of the time, you're writing to somebody that you know, that you have shared experiences, right? I mean, I could write a, a letter or an email to Josh and say, uh, how's the collapsed part of the building going? Well, if I wrote that to somebody else, they'd say, uh, what are you talking about? But Josh would know right away because we were here when it came to falling down. We have a shared experience. So I don't have to give a lot of explanation. When you read the letters of the New Testament, remember they're writing to people that they've already taught. So when they're referring to things, they're not giving every bit of information about that thing because they've already taught that person that, which is why we have to compare all of the different Scripture together about certain subjects. So we're going to be talking about faith and the failure when we misdefine the word faith. And let me give you just a nugget to chew on after you leave here today. Wrong expectations guarantee disappointments. If you expect your car to go down to the Ted Stevens airport, and if you get it up to 100 miles an hour, it will take off and fly you across the water, you're really going to be disappointed because you have a wrong expectation. On the other hand, I believe in the law of gravity. I believe that the law of gravity does not waver. I don't believe that the law of gravity starts and stops. And yet I do get on a plane knowing that there's no way in the world that the law of gravity is going to allow that 30, 40 ton thing to get off the ground. But there's more to the story than just the law of gravity. The law of gravity is true. But there's also the law of lift and the law of forward motion and propulsion and all of those things. Are right. The Bible's the same way. When you read it, it has more to the story. And part of our job as the people of God is to read the Bible and learn more to the story. So when we talk about faith, we all have in our minds some sort of a definition of faith. More often than not, we have been led to believe somewhere in our past life, not here, but in, other, in some other churches, in some other books, in some other television ministries or whatever, that faith is believing that God is going to meet your need, but that's not enough. You also have to believe when, where, and how he's going to do it. That's where we get in trouble. It's one thing to say, God, I need a car. I need a car to go to work. I need a car to get my family around. I need transportation. So I'm asking you to provide for me the car that you want me to have. It's a whole nother thing to say, that Jaguar, I just feel the Holy Ghost confirming in my heart. Actually, what I would probably say is, that Ross Anderson has got a nice, old, beautiful Corvette in his garage. I've touched it. And I just feel the Holy Ghost that if I have enough faith 
God. You understand what I'm talking about? Listen, the when, where, and how, unless God specifically, and he can do this, but unless God specifically speaks to you in a confirmed way, the when, where, and how of meeting your need is something that God only, only God knows. But the fact that God will be faithful to meet your need is what your faith must be all about. Now, don't turn there, but make a note. You can look at it later again to save some time because, as you know, my wife says I preach the everlasting gospel, not referring to the gospel, but referring to the length of time it takes me to get through it. And Josh is sitting right here, and he beat the snot out of me if I go too long. So anyway, the <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11 is frequently referred to as the Heroes Hall of Faith. And it is referred to it because nearly the entire chapter says, by faith so-and-so did this, by faith they did this, by faith this person did this, by faith that person did that. However... It starts out by giving us a very clear definition of what God considers to be correct faith. In verse 6, and most all of us are familiar with this, but it says this, without faith it is impossible to please God. Now if we stop right there, we certainly would agree that however we're going to end up defining faith, and we would like to define it the way God defines it and not the way we would define it on our own, but however we define faith, it must be really, 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 really important since without it, it's not possible to please God. If we cannot please God, then we'll never be a part of His eternal family. Now, we rejoice that through the offering of Jesus, he has pleased the Father on our behalf. But here, and of course for us to get the benefit of that, we have to have faith. So here it says that it is impossible to please God without faith. But the question is, then what do I have to have faith for? Or how would I define that faith? Does that mean that if you need a job and you look through a listing of jobs and you see one that you really believe you're suited for, the hours are good, the pay is good, and so faith then is saying, God, you know I need a job, and so that's the one right there that you need to give me, that one right there. I'm going to believe for that one right there. Is that, what, is that how faith is defined here? Well, let's do something interesting. Let's read the rest of the, of the, of the sentence and find out if the Bible actually gives us some information. For without faith, it is impossible to please God because. Now, we know, no matter what language we speak, whatever word is used for the word because can become very important. It's like, I know you need to use a car, so I'm going to let you borrow my car. However, when you come up to a red light or a stop sign, you need to start slowing down long before you get to it because, oh, well, don't worry about it. No, no, I'd like to hear what comes after 
because, well, because I don't have any brakes. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. That's it. So without faith, it is impossible to please God because now the Spirit has inspired words to give us what a definition of what we must believe. Number one, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Now, sitting here today in the 21st century, we say, well, duh, of course, we have to believe that God exists. But this wasn't written to us in the 21st century. It was written to people alive in the first century of the Roman Empire. And if you were alive in the first century of the Roman Empire, you, like virtually everybody else except the little tiny area of Israel where the Jews lived, tiny compared to all of the Roman Empire, you would believe in many, 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 many gods. You would be polytheistic. You would believe in many gods. In fact, and you can prove this for yourself, when you get home, don't do it with your phone now, but when you get home, Google first century pagans and what they called Christians. And what you'll find is that Christians in the first century were frequently called pagan because they only believed in one God. Well, if you only believe in one God in the first century, you are a pagan because there are many, many, many gods according to their belief system. But for a Christian, it wasn't just that they believed in one God, but they believed in a specific God who came in the flesh and has a name. Peter put it this way and said, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to, when we read this, we have to think like a first century person would read it and we say, okay, the first aspect of faith is I must believe that Jesus Christ is the God who exists, that he exists. He rose from the dead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a way that human beings will not be able to understand until we pass from this life to the next. Make up God, and there's only one. And to believe in any other one causes you to be an unbeliever. So that's the first thing. So how many qualify for that? You do believe that God exists. His son is Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh. All right, so you got that down. So the second one is, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, what, what I want you to notice here is what's not in there. What's not in there is, and who believes when, where, and how he's going to reward us. That's not in there. What we are commanded to believe is that God's nature is that he takes care of his children. That's what we're commanded to believe. Not when, where, or how. But that God's nature is not only does he exist and there's only one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God but that God's nature is that he will reward anyone who seeks after him. That's his nature. 
That's what we must believe. And that's it. That is it. Now, when you read the rest of the chapter, you hear that Abraham did what he did by faith. Why? Because he believed there was one God, and he believed that that God would take care of him in his time of need. You say, well, wait a minute. Abraham also believed that God would give him a son. Not really. Not really. He, <laughs> Abraham, Abraham got to the point where he was no longer sure God would do it at all, so he decided, actually his wife decided it. That still kind of boggles my mind. That would not work in the Drake household. I'm telling you that right now. And thank God that it wouldn't because they're still messed up today because of this Hagar, Ishmael whole situation here. But Abraham struggled. Abraham lied about his own wife. I mean, we, but, but he believed that the one true God existed and that he would, in fact, reward. He did not know when, where, or how. Now, one of the trip-ups is that there are a few out there who teach, well, real faith is that you take the promise of God and then you tell God how that's going to be fulfilled. That's real faith. Really? Well, then Abraham should have told God 25 years earlier, you just promised me to give me a son. Got my arms open. I'm ready. But you don't find any of that in the Scripture. They had to wait 25 years, and they still didn't know. And then, to top it all off, after they got the right son, God said, now go kill him. Say, whoa, wait a minute. What, what am I going to believe? I'm going to believe that this is the one true God and that his nature is that he takes care of his children. So this is what all of these people, they did not understand the when, where, and how. Moses knew that it came into his heart to deliver the people of Israel. But he didn't know when, where, or how, so he blew it. He started 40 years too soon. Joseph knew that God was going to put him at the head of something, but he didn't know how. Paul knew that God was going to take him to Rome. The last thought I'm sure he had in his mind was that he was going to be taken on a slave ship as a prisoner. So the when, where, and how is something that is up to the sovereign God who already lives above and beyond time and knows that. Now, let's deal with this double-minded issue because both for myself and for believers that I meet around the world, I, I see and my heart breaks for people who come and they have some kind of a story about my family had this crisis and I put my faith in God and I saw what was obviously the best way to meet my need. And so I said, God, I'm believing for that when, where, and how, and it didn't happen. And now I'm disappointed. I'm crushed because I feel like God let me down. Well, the enemy loves that. The enemy loves to feed on that kind of wrong thinking because it gives birth to mountains of condemnation. Or then we get into the thing of, well, I didn't have enough faith. Well, how much is enough? Well, I'm not sure, but obviously, whatever it is, I fell short of it. Or here's one, I didn't get enough of my friends to pray with me. 
Can you imagine if Paul got a revelation that 2,000 years later there would be the internet? And that by Facebook you can get thousands of people? Oh, man, if I'd have just friended 10 more people, then God would have done. See, this is not biblical faith. Now, I know we're sincere when we think this way, but this is not biblical faith. You're not being double-minded. If you look at the job that seems good to you, and then you wonder whether God's going to give it to you, you're not being double-minded. You're being human because you don't know the future. Listen, I can tell you lots of people that got the job they wanted. And before the year was out, the company went bankrupt and they started all over again. But it seemed so perfect to begin with. Has anybody ever gotten the job you wanted and then after you started working found out that your boss was clearly a demon from hell dressed up as a human being? And then you look in the mirror and you say, I actually prayed for this. What kind of a nut am I? But see, that's not, that's not Bible faith. That's the work of the enemy to keep us fearful and condemned. So let's read what James says and see what he gives us. So I'm just going to begin reading in James chapter 1. James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes referring to Jews, and we know by reading the book he's referring to Jewish believers, scattered among the nations. Now that refers directly to Acts chapter 8 when a says a, a huge persecution broke out in Jerusalem against the believers, and the next verse says, all the believers except the apostles left. They left Jerusalem. Many of them left Israel when Paul was still going by his Jewish name Saul before his conversion. He was on his way to Damascus. That's in Syria. It wasn't even in Israel, but he was tracking down Christians in other countries to arrest and ultimately for some of them kill them. So this is who James is writing to, and this letter got passed around all around those areas. So he goes on, verse 2. Now right away, right away, he throws us a curveball. He cannot be serious. Consider, I'm reading the NIV, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay, I'm getting off the bus right here because this, now I, 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 I'm, I, I'm willing to work to endure trials. But James is saying, jump up and down and be really, really happy that you are in the midst of troubles that you can't fix. Now, the only way somebody could say that is if they know that by these troubles, you are going to make great gains. It's the only way that James or anybody else could write this. And all the apostles wrote this way. But he goes on and says, count it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because, there's the word again, because, you know. Well, okay, so right now we're going to be honest and say, well, we don't really know, but we're praying for God to help us to know. 
right? Come on, come on. How many have been in the midst of worship saying, oh, Jesus, I love you with all of my heart. Uh, okay, Lord Jesus, I love you with most of my heart. Say, man, I'm lying in worship here, you know? Okay, that's fine. That's the truth. Go with it. That's okay. So James knew and was convinced of something. He knows we are not really convinced, but he's trying by the word of God to convince us, and we need convincing. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, let's ask ourselves some good questions. And by the way, before I do this, I want to say, I believe in miracles. I believe that God does miraculously intervene in people's lives in ways that can never be rationally explained. But if I'm going to have integrity, I also have to say in reading the Bible, he doesn't always do that. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament were told to bow down, they said, we're not going to do it. And then they were told, well, if you don't do it, then we're going to throw you in the furnace and burn you up. And their response was, we know that our God is able. But if he chooses not to, it's not going to change us. What a healthy attitude. What I know that God can do that. But because he's God, if he knows there's something better for me on down the line, I'm not interested in trying to convince him to do something for me now that will be inferior to what he really wanted to do, but I was too impatient and kept demanding something because I don't know the future. So I asked for my need to be met. I, I, I need you to meet my needs, and I'm going to put my trust in you. So he goes on, and he says that the testing of our faith develops perseverance perseverance must finish its work man what powerful words there's a work being done in us when god doesn't immediately answer our prayer when god doesn't immediately solve our problem there's a work being done in us and what is the work that's being done in us that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Do you notice here that James does not say, when your faith reaches the place where every time you pray, a miracle happens, that is what makes you mature. That's not what James says. In fact, James says just the opposite. When you are in the midst of trouble and you ask God to fix it and he doesn't do it, but you don't change your belief that God rewards those who keep seeking him. Then you are becoming mature. I believe in miracles. I pray for miracles. I believe in that. But how utterly foolish would I as a human being be if I thought that maturity was that I get to tell God when, where, and how to do the stuff I want him to do. Doesn't make any sense. But turn on some TV channels and you will hear that kind of preaching. Normally it's followed by, and send your check to this ad 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 address. 
Verse 5. Now, we know that perseverance now is, is doing a work. It's doing a work in us. And the work that it's doing is growing us into maturity. This is the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Back up two sentences, and it says, this is what I have learned. If I don't have enough to get by and I'm about to starve, it doesn't change me. It doesn't change the way I believe about what I believe about God. If I have an abundance more than I need, it doesn't change me. I don't become greedy or selfish. I can do all of this through Christ. That's the context. Because Paul understood that we are instructed to make our needs known to God, and then trust is all about watching to see when, where, and how he follows through because of his nature. So he goes on in verse 5, and he says, if any of you lack wisdom. And when you read your Bible, learn to ask good questions of yourself and of the Scripture. So here's a question. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom about what? No, in the, con well, but in the context of what we, ju we just read, when you're surrounded by all kinds of trials and you don't know what to do, you can't fix them, but you just have to persevere, ask wisdom for what? Patience. How about what should I do? If you've read my book, uh, Running on Empty, my newest one, it's based on the story of Peter, Jesus saying the night of the Lord of the Last Supper, uh, you're going to deny me three times. Peter kept saying, no, I won't, no, I won't, no, I won't. If he was wise, he would have said, you know, Jesus, you've always been right about everything you've ever said. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and figure you're probably right about this too. So I have a question for you. When I do this horrible thing, what should I do next? See, that's wisdom. Man, I'm in the midst of a problem here, and I can't fix it. I need wisdom. I need wisdom. Now listen to the way God is described. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God. Now listen. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. Would you read those words with me, please? Who gives generously to all without finding fault. Do you notice it does not say who gives liberally and generously to the really spiritual ones? It's not what it says. But he gives to anyone who will ask, and he does it, he gives wisdom, wisdom, he gives wisdom to anyone who asks without finding fault. Now, again, context, context, context. But when he asks, asks for what? Wisdom, context, wisdom. He must believe and not doubt. Believe what? That God is generous and he does not what? Find fault in you. Now, how many of you think that God would not have to look very far to find several faults about you? 
But God has decided in his love for you that he's not going to hold that against you. He understands you. We have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. So he who asks for wisdom must believe that the nature of the God he is asking is that God responds to the request for wisdom generously and he does not bring up your faults and somehow penalize you for them. Are you there? You got to get this because the very next statement is because he who doubts, doubts what? That God will give generously and not hold faults against me. He who doubts is like the wave of the sea. That man, which man? The man who does not believe that God gives generously and doesn't hold faults against that man shall not think he will receive anything. He is a double-minded man. Do you see what it means to be double-minded? It does not mean I'm believing for that car, that specific car right there. Praise God, I'm speaking that thing into my driveway. Hallelujah. And I'm just, and, 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 and oh man, somebody else bought it. Oh, I guess I didn't have enough faith. I guess I'm double-minded. That's not what the Bible calls double-minded. Double-minded is not believing what God says his nature is. That's what it means to be double-minded. Because if I don't, if I choose not to believe that God will give me wisdom generously and not throw my faults up in my face and penalize me, if I don't believe that, then what I am believing is that God lies. That's what I'm believing. I am accepting the lie of the devil that God lies. And that started in the garden. Eve, God did not tell you the truth. It started back then and it's still... How many people have you heard say the devil doesn't have any new tricks in his bag? It's still the same old thing. So I don't understand when, where, how God's going to do it, but this is what I do absolutely believe. That he exists and he's the only true God and he will reward me if I continue to follow after him. I believe that he will not hold my faults against me when I am in time of need. And he will give me wisdom about what to do. Now I want to drop down real fast to the very last verse in, the, in, in what I gave you, my brother, back there. Verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. It's verse 19. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, again, context, context, context. The entire portion from verse 2 to verse 20 is about facing troubles and trials and not having an answer. And now it says, when you're in that situation, everyone should be quick to listen. We were just told to pray for what? Wisdom. I'll let you chew on this, but he didn't tell us to pray for a miracle. Now, he does believe in miracles because later on he says things like, if there's any sick among you, 
Call for the elders of the church, pray. God will do a miracle. He does believe in miracles. But in this set of circumstances where there's a trial, trouble, a problem, and we ask God to fix it, but for whatever reason, which we don't know yet, he doesn't. Now, now, we have to go to this and say, okay, here's what we do. Everyone should be quick to listen. God wants to speak to me. Somehow, some way, he wants to speak to me. I should be quick to listen. I should be slow to speak. I'm thinking right now of the place in Job where Job had been talking off and on for a long time, and then all of a sudden it says Job went over in the corner and sat for days and didn't say a word, which was a real smart thing to do (laughs) because he needed to hear from God. He did not need for God to hear his thoughts anymore. But I want you to look at the last thing here. And slow to become angry. Why? For man's anger does not bring the righteous life God desires. In context, what this person is getting angry at is himself. I'm getting angry at myself because I'm not believing that God's nature is to give me wisdom and not count my faults. I am believing that I probably sinned too much or I haven't prayed enough or I haven't read my Bible enough or I haven't done this enough or I haven't done and I begin to get angry. How many know the feeling of looking in the mirror and say, I knew that was wrong and I did it, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to do that again. I am not going to behave like that. How many know that anger that rises up at yourself because you sin? You act carnally again. And you look in the mirror, so to speak, and you say, I know better than that. I shouldn't be doing that. James says that will not produce the righteous life that God desires. But it only makes sense. If we're saying a man gets angry and that's somehow going to help, what we're saying is, well, if you just pump up self-will, then that'll help. It won't. So what do we need? Well, number one, if you're here today and you've not surrendered your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord over your life, you may have been misled to believe that God is an angry judge. And that in his judgment over you, or his anger toward you, he doesn't want you in his family. I want to tell you, that's a lie. God will give to you eternal life generously. And he will not hold your faults against you, but he will wash you clean of them. If you're a believer, and you're struggling with condemnation because you prayed for things, but you're still stuck in that, and you don't know what to do, ask of God believing that he will give generously. But what does that require? That requires a renewing of our minds so that we see God the way he describes himself. He gives generously. And he does not hold your faults against you. May the Holy Spirit renew your mind before you leave this building today so that you are no longer beaten by the idea that God is bringing up your faults because he is not.
for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please connect with us at abbottloop.org and like us on Facebook. We hope to see you soon.